Hey everyone, how's it going? Caitlin Lowe here, host of Silver on the Sage podcast. And this is season two, episode 11. It is the second chapter, if you will, of the mini series Women of Philmont. Today, Dawn Chandler joins the show. Dawn was a participant in 1980 and 1981. In 1982, she was a RAO participant. In 1983, In 1984, Dawn was a ranger. In 1985 and 1987, she was a ranger trainer, or as they called back then, a training ranger. And in 1988 and 1989, Dawn was the camp director at Abreu. Dawn was also the executive director of the Philmont Staff Association from 1997 to 2002. Now, Dawn is a very renowned name amongst the Philmont community for several reasons. She was the first female camp director in 1988. She was also the first executive director of the Philmont Staff Association. And last, but certainly not least, she is an incredible artist, painting familiar Philmont landscapes, abstracting landscapes, and much more. She credits her rich Philmont experiences to her family, her colleagues, and her art. I'd also like to note that the two photos accompanying Dawn's episode have a fun backstory. In Dawn's own words, Doug Fashing took the one of me painting the tooth. It was just a few weeks after the worst of the Ute Park fire in 2018. I wanted to be there and create a painting that I could auction off to raise money for the fire fund. The second photo captures my expression during the last few minutes of the eBay auction of said painting. Between the auction and the sale of my limited edition prints, Philmont Art Lovers and I raised over $8,000 for the fire fund. Incidentally, prints are still available, and the proceeds are still going to that 2018 Ute Park fire fund. I'm going to link that fire fund as well as Dawn's personal website at the bottom of her episode. So definitely check out those two things. And a special thanks to Dawn for sharing her heart and her stories with us on this episode. Good morning, Dawn. How are you today? I am well. Thank you so much for having me here. Of course. I'm really excited just to talk about all things Philmont and art and anything else that comes up in conversation this morning. Sure. It's my my pleasure. Thank you. So you went on two treks, a one Rayado trek as a participant, and then you worked at Philmont for several, several summers and also worked for the Philmont Staff Association. So would love to hear your story and and how it all how it all started. Yeah, well, um, I grew up. I was born and raised in New Jersey, with roots in uh, the Mid Atlantic states and New England. And my my family was a very uh, outdoorsy family. My father was an avid backpacker all his life. So I grew up. You know, our family vacations, while most families in New Jersey would go down the shore as they say, to the coast, we always went to the mountains. And our vacations either involved learning 
you know, going to historic sites or outdoor activities, camping, canoeing, backpacking. And those backpacking trips were primarily on the Appalachian Trail in uh, New York State and New Hampshire. In the 70s, my father, late 70s, my father and I have two older brothers, Eric and Mark, they got involved in scouting in Troop 88. And when my father came along, he was determined to transform that troop into a backpacking troop. And sure enough, he did that. And he led that troop's first film on excursion um, in 1977. My brothers weren't on that trek. I'm sorry, I think that was 1976. And then my father returned the next year with another crew from that troop. And my brothers were on that one. And my father kept a very detailed diary while on those Philmont treks. And he mailed home the pages of his diary. And so my mother read them aloud, you know, at dinner time. And it just, Philmont just sounded like a, they were having a blast. It sounded fantastic, just just incredible with, you know, stories of the backcountry and the campfires and and uh, the the landscape. So when my my father and brothers returned from their trek, my dad asked me, "Would you like to go to Philmont?" And I said, "Well, yeah, but how can I?" You know, I'm a girl and it's owned by the Boy Scouts. And he said, well, there's there's something um, called Explorer Scouts, which is a co-ed branch of the Boy Scouts. You have to be a little older. You have to be 15 to be an Explorer Scout. But when you turn 15, if you still want to go to Philmont, we will start an Explorer Post. So sure enough, that's what happened. And in the Boy Scout troop was another family that we had become very close to, the Hitzels. And uh, they had four boys and a daughter, Sue. And, and Sue and I were good friends. So our two families joined together to create Explore Post 1840. 1840 was supposedly the last, last year of the last Mountain Man Rendezvous. The year of the last Mountain, mountain Man Rendezvous. I don't know if that's actually true, but that was uh, our theory. And um, we advertised the formation of this Explore Post. We advertised it in our high schools and, and got many more members. So essentially, we were a teenage backpacking club that was registered with the Boy Scouts as an Explore Post. We did the absolute minimum requirements to be an Explore Post. But we backpacked, you know, sure. I mean, every, every month from March through October, we were going out backpacking. And so in 1980, my parents led our Explore Post to Philmont. We were part of the uh, Wachung Area Council, and we were the first girls from that council to go to Philmont. Our expedition number was 706A14, which tells you the size of that contingent coming from central New Jersey. Yeah. And our, and our crew had six, six girls and four boys. So my parents were our advisors. My oldest brother was a first-year ranger that year. And, you know, 
the rest is history. The next year I returned and the Hitzels, Mr. and Mrs. Hitzel were our advisors and I was crew leader. And then my other brother, Mark, started working at Philmont, I think in, I think in 80, 82, when I returned as a Rayado Ranger, as a Rayado uh, woman. And then in 1983, I was hired as a Ranger. Worked in the Ranger department two years. And then in 1985, I was a Ranger trainer or training Ranger, as we called them back then. That year, that summer was challenging for me, mainly because I think deep down I was lacking self-confidence in the leadership aspect of it. And it felt like a job, (laughs) you know? Yeah. It just felt, it just felt hard. And I thought, I don't think I can do this again. I I need a break from this, but if I'm not going to come back to Philmont, I need to do something that's just as incredible. So the next summer, 1986, I went to France to study French and art. So here I was, 22, traveling through Europe by myself. And that definitely boosted my confidence. <laughs> and yes. uh, I, I was, I will, uh, I should mention 1986 was the year of all the bear incidents. And I missed all that, all that drama and tragedy. After that summer, I was ready to come back. And I returned in 1987. Uh, as a second year ranger trainer. And so now it's my fourth year in the ranger department. And I just had a great attitude. I felt absolutely confident in my abilities. I had a tremendous crew, a training crew and wonderful crews throughout the summer. And it was just a great, great summer. I guess through my ranger years, when it came to applying for jobs for the next year, I I wanted to continue in the ranger department. But, you know, once you become a second year ranger trainer, women weren't allowed in the backcountry. So where Um, are you going to go? Right. Right? There's only um, like four, four or five ranger leadership positions. Women weren't in conservation either. So I'm sure that all the other uh, second year women training rangers and I were putting, we want to work in the backcountry. We want to be, and we want to be camp directors probably. And we especially wanted to work in the interpretive camps. I mean, who wouldn't, right? Yep. yep. <laughs> so I don't know if there were rumors about them hiring women for the backcountry the next year. I don't, I don't remember if that was the case. I don't think there was that rumor. I think we were just putting that as our heart's desire. So that winter, the winter of 87, 88, 88 was going to be the 25th anniversary of something at Philmont. I don't remember what it was. It was something, it may have been like the 25th anniversary of the acquisition of Baldy Country. And my friend, Peter Crook, was hired to work in the off season to help coordinate that anniversary celebration, whatever that involved. So, so he was there working, working in admin in the off season. And I was a senior in college at this point. And he called me in January and he said, I've got incredible news. I said, what is it? He said, 
you have been selected to be the first woman camp director. I said, no way. Where? And he said, Abreu. And I said, Abreu? Should I take it? And he said, should you take it? Of course you should take it. Are you crazy? And then I I said, oh, yeah, yeah right, right, of course, of course, great, Abreu. <laughs> but, of course, I was, I, I was initially disappointed because, you know, Abreu was probably last on my list. It was, a, you know, a dusty, windswept starting camp just you know not a cool program it was not interpretive it just it had burrow racing adobe brick making and root beer <laughs> and they weren't really connected in any way and and so that's why i was initially disappointed but of course i ended up loving it it's beautiful down there you've got the magnificent rayado river and um, the the sunrise and sunsets there, and a lot of people coming through. And so, at the end of that first summer, I requested a Breu again <laughs> for my second year. So I was camp director at a Breu two summers. Your story is fabulous. I love how at the beginning it's this whole family affair, and. I'm so glad that your parents got you out there and it seems like your whole family just was organically meant to be a part of the Philmont experience and Philmont history. And, uh, and I, I think it's really, you must've been so self-aware at such a young age to say, I need to step back and, and go challenge myself. And you like took it to this next level of like France. Um, <laughs> so that's, it's very inspirational as well. And uh, I, I kind of relate to that. I remember my my last summer, actually, when in 2013, I was a backcountry manager. And that was a challenging year for me because that was the first year it felt like a job as well. And and that ended up being my last summer. But uh, I think a lot of seasonal staff members have that year where it's different and they have to decide, does this mean you know my tenure is done or do I take a step back? And thirdly, I was going to say, when I was offered CD Abreu, I had a similar reaction. Um, and I was not enthusiastic, and I kind of had to be convinced. And some, just like you, it ended up being just perfect and just what I needed. And by then, it had become interpretive, which was awesome. And I'm glad, because now the history ties together and it makes more sense. Yeah, uh, very much so. My second year there in in, in 89 they had decided to make it interpretive. Okay. So, but it was still very, very loose. I mean, we didn't yeah. entirely know what we were doing. I, I do remember, though, Dean Tooley sending me, oh, maybe that was in my first year, Dean Tooley sending me a, an inner camp message saying that chugging root beer is not the Abreu program. <laughs> <laughs> And I and I said I agree. It's it's not it, it's not nor will it be. But I guess maybe <laughs> on my days off, some of my staff were allowing kids to compete against get each competitive. Other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As it happens, I'm sure As to it, this day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just need a little gentle reminder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so 
Were there other female camp directors with you either of those years, or was it just you in 88 and 89? In 88, it was just me, but women were in, in two other camps. So they, they started women in, at Ponil, Cimarroncito, and Abreu. Okay. And they never said why, but it seems to me it's because those are easily accessible in case something goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Um, and then in the next year in 89, they had, I think, three other women camp directors. So Mariah Hughes was, at, I think, at Dan Beard that year. Kate Griffin was at Fish Camp. I was at Abreu. There may have been one other, or maybe it was just we three. Yeah. But then, uh, the, but then Ponil and Cimarroncito also had women then. Taking it a step back, back to, I think it was 1982 when you were a participant on a Rayada women uh, crew. Mm-hmm. Do you want to chat about that at all? That was pretty incredible. Um, my brothers had done Rayado, so I had a general idea what I was getting into. I mean, very general. They, you know, they respected, they can't share too much information. Yeah, they kept the mystery. Yeah. Good. But um, but that was my first time traveling by myself, and I, you know, I, I arrived. I flew into Denver, Colorado Springs, then hopped on a hopped on a bus that took me to Raton, and a Philmont vehicle picked me up. And then, you know, the Philmont vehicle <laughs> delivers me and a few other campers to the welcome center, and I realize my pack isn't there. Oh. I left my pack in Raton. And, you know, what a way to start a Rayado trek. And I told <laughs> and I told my brothers and they said, no problem, we will we'll get together the equipment that you need. But of course, you know, the folks in Raton at the bus station saw a backpack there and knew where it was headed. So my pack was delivered that by that that evening. You know, oh, good. Yeah. So that I overcame <laughs> that horror, that horror. And then uh, my ranger was Ann Cadena, Ann Cadena. And we just had four girls. We were the only Rayado Trek women, the only female Rayado Trek that summer. Wow. On day two, we hiked from Stonewall Pass to Black Mountain over Black Mountain. Just a little hike. <laughs> it's the only time, it's the only time in all my Philmont history I have ever climbed Black Mountain because I swore I would never climb it again. And, uh, and what I remember is that there are several false summits and it was, it was so hard. I was so miserable and I decided before we reached the summit that I couldn't do it, that I wasn't going to do it. I wasn't up for this. And so I had, I guess we were taking a break and the ranger and another gal were a little bit further ahead. They had stopped. So I had put down my pack and I was approaching them. I wanted to pull my ranger aside and tell her, look, I, I can't do this. But when I approached her, she was 
dealing with one of the other girls who had horrible blisters. So she was helping, you know, applying first aid. And I realized this is the wrong time. That's just for me to, to do this. So I didn't say anything. Of course, after that, we're now going downhill. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it got better. And then right. we were at Black Mountain Camp, which, you know, welcomed us. And, and, and they did a tremendous campfire and everything, life was better. So I never did have that conversation with her. And at the end of the trek, she asked me, remember on Black Mountain, when you, you seemed to come over like you wanted to speak with me? I said, yeah. She said, were you going to give up? And I said, yeah, I was. Now, I will say that that gal who she was helping, I don't remember her last name, her, her name was Susie. Her feet by the end of the trek were absolute hamburger. They were chewed up with blisters. I Ugh. mean, raw. Yeah. And she never complained through that whole trip. She always had a smile on her face and she hung in there. And I'm sure that had an impact on me. It's like, man, if she can get, if she can, if she can get through this with her feet in the shape they are, I can hang in there. I I was never on a trek as a participant in any form. And I, I can't wait to get out there at some point and do a PSA track. And maybe someday, even with my, my own children, um, I just, I mean, it's just so impactful. I'm so glad Philmont exists for youth and even, you know, growing in, as an adult, because we're always growing. Um, yeah. So I'm excited to, to have that, my own adventure someday, my own blisters, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. And you will. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about who had a big impact on me and probably, probably not even probably without question. One of the people to have the greatest impact on my life. <laughs> and I, I, I can feel my, I can feel myself choking up just thinking about him. Um, is, uh, he was actually a rabbi and I'm, I'm not, I'm not Jewish, but rabbi Arnie Sludelberg who was just, I mean, he's, he's, he's still with us. Um, uh, he's just a lovely, lovely man, wonderful humor, compassionate, so insightful. And in 1987, so when I was a second year TR, he and I drove up to, in his chaplain vehicle, he and I drove up to Black Mountain for the night we were going to spend the night up there with the fellas at black mountain and in the morning for breakfast the staff pulled out all the stops i mean they took their entire comron and basically cooked it up for us for breakfast i mean there were there were pancakes and biscuits and gravy and and sausage and bacon and you know and the and the coffee cake that they got and orange juice and coffee and all this stuff and and so we're all gathered around the table and I'm sitting next to Arnie, Rabbi Arnie, 
and I'm passing, you know, taking food and passing it, taking food and passing it. And then I get the plate of bacon and sausage and I take some and I, and I go to pass it to him. And I said, Oh, I guess you don't want this. And he's, and he, he, he said, no, I'll take that. When I am a guest in someone's home, I eat what is served. And that blew me away. This is a ra- a rabbi who's going to eat some bacon. That was just so gracious. And I've never forgotten that. And I have been, I eat a plant-based diet. Sometimes I say I'm a flexible vegan. <laughs> sure. And uh, and that's because, you know, in my own home, I eat, you know, almost 100% plant-based. But if I'm a guest in someone's home, I will eat what is served. I'm just grateful to be fed. <laughs> I'm grateful for their hospitality. And so um, I think of that all the time. It's a beautiful way to yeah, be gracious, respectful, and um, and just honor, you know, the fact that you're in someone else's home and <laughs> Yeah, they're going to the trouble to feed me. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thank thank you. Thank you for, yes. for for nurturing me. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you were the executive director, right? For several years for the Philmont Staff Association. Yeah. So the PSA was founded, I think, in 1974. The idea, the brainchild of Ned Gold, who was the first president. So in um, 1996 or so, it had been around for over 20 years. And its membership was at about... 660 and it had been plateaued it had plateaued there for a number of years it was there was no executive director it was run entirely by volunteers who were spread out all over the country and they didn't have a permanent mailing address the ad the mailing address would change with every election and and the address would be the address of whoever was the secretary is is my understanding of it. I was not a member of the PSA, but in, I think, 1996, I, I think in 1995, the PSA board decided that high country, which was the main value of being a member, that high country should come out six times per year. So they made that decision and then that next year, not a single issue came out oh, because whoops. whoever was in charge yeah. of it was busy with their life, you know? So Bill Spice, who was the general manager at the time, spoke with the PSA. Now I'm, I may get, I may have some of these details wrong. Someone else can sure. surely make corrections to, to this. But the way I understand it is Bill Spice approached Mark Stinnett, who I believe was the president at the time and said, I'm basically, I'm inviting the PSA to level up and and get real and get serious. And I will provide you with an office space here and you can use the film on address. And so the PSA board decided that they needed to create a paid position of executive director. And they wanted someone who lived close enough 
where they could come to Philmont once a week and rub elbows with the Philmont staff and, and all that. You know, they wanted someone who had a relationship to Philmont or who had worked there. So I was living in Taos. I was working as a greenskeeper, a waitress, and a bartender <laughs> and with a master of fine arts degree, you know, in painting. And I was really the only option. I don't think there was anyone else <laughs> within a hundred mile radius who could who was available to do the job. So they called me to see if I would be interested in being the first executive director. It would be very part-time. It would start at 12 or 15 hours a week. And my, I think it was Warren Smith who initially, and he was on the board at the time. I think it was Warren Smith who initially called me. It left a message. And my first thought was, no way. No way. And, and here's why. From the age of 15 all the way through college, Philmont was my religion. I grew up in a non-religious household. So Philmont fill, you know, filled that need. And I, was, I had been obsessed by it. I thought about it all the time. I didn't want to go back to being that obsessed with it. And because I knew I had come to realize that there was more to my life than these summer experiences, as rich and incredible as those were, uh, there was more to life, like my, my art and, and, and other adventures I wanted to have. But then I thought, or, and I also had never been a member of the PSA. Because I thought, you know what? I already have my film on friends. You know, why do I need that? And I live here in New Mexico. I don't, I don't really need to be involved in that. But then I thought, okay, well, maybe because I know there's life beyond film on, maybe I'm now in that, in that headspace, in the right headspace to do that job. Maybe I'm, maybe I have some maturity that I hadn't had earlier or whatever. So I decided I accepted the, the offer. It's interesting to note if I were to apply now for the job with the, with my resume back then, you know, <laughs> painting major, uh, bartender, <laughs> there's no way yeah. Uh, there's no way I would even make the first cut of the resumes. And the truth is really anyone, almost anyone could have, could have done that, could have done the job that I did. They just needed a body there and they needed someone who was relatively organized. Now I brought, I brought a creative eye to it that my, my first directives, and I will say everyone on the PSA board was was wonderful and and encouraging and happy that I was there. They gave me so much freedom. They basically said, we need, we need letterhead. <laughs> we should be sending out a greeting card at Christmas time. And high country needs to come out six times a year. 
and do what you can to expand membership. So, but beyond that, I was kind of left left to myself to to figure out how to do all that. And they hired me. It was either ninety six or ninety seven that summer. And within six months, we got six issues of High Country out. Nice, yeah. Um, and I wasn't doing the layout yet. I started doing the layout of it a year or so later. But anyhow, by the time I left, five or six years later, we had gone from 660 members to over 2,000. That's an improvement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now I'm not even sure where the membership is. It may be doubled that. So, well, I'm glad that, you know, the stars aligned and fate led you to, to being that geographical presence and that, you know, creative, organized, available person. Um, I was on the board of the PSA for a while and um, I'm excited to get back involved now that my kiddos are a little older and I have a little more free time, but, but yeah, it's, it's an, it's a fantastic thing to be a part of. And uh, I, I didn't realize that not only were you the first female camp director, but you were the first executive director of the PSA. So, hey, yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's really cool. It's a matter of being in the right place at the right time more than anything. I ultimately left the PSA because it had grown from 12 or 15 hours a week to, you know, 60 hours a week. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. And I didn't have a permanent office. They kept my office would move. You know, I would it really I didn't have an office. I had a desk. And, you know, one season it would be in one room and in another season then they would decide they needed that for someone else. So I'd get shoved <laughs> over here or over here. But finally, just like with my summer staff experience, it I was becoming burned out and I couldn't muster enthusiasm anymore for all that they wanted to do. You know, they would come up with a new idea like, oh, we should be doing this. And the feeling of overwhelm for me was, oh no. <laughs> now yeah, another thing on your list. Yeah, another yeah. thing on my list. And I realized they need someone. It's time for someone new who can come in and say, yes, yes, we need to be doing that. That is a great idea. Let me put all my energy into that. And in those five years, I was not I was hardly able to do my art. Yeah. And I wanted to get back into doing my art. And, and in fact, I had been thinking of leaving sooner, but I was scared. I was scared of pursuing my art full time. And then I woke up one day, you know, because... They always say it's hard to support yourself as an artist. But then I, I realized one day, okay, you're not going to pursue your passion and your dream because of fear? Really? That's, uh, that's pathetic. And so I decided, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. So I did. Thank, thank goodness you did. And, and, uh, so many of us, yeah, I mean, fear, dang, dang that fear. It holds us back too often. And also kind of jumping back about how you were talking about in so many words that you had to sort of, you know, break up with Philmont or, or, um, 
end that obsession. I mean, gosh, I can relate to that because it's, it is so rich. And when you're young and you're in your seasonal, you know, time on staff, it's hard to, (laughs) it's hard to break up with that and go into the real world. And then again, you know, you, you almost had a second wave of that with the PSA and, uh, it's, it's interesting to grow. It's interesting to be a human being because you go through so many phases of growth and that's easy to say out loud, but it's the, the action of it is, is so deep and uh, experiential and yeah, just thanks for being vulnerable and sharing that stuff. I think it needs to be heard more often. Well, sure. Sure. It's part of the, part of the story. And so you did, you, you, uh, said hell no to fear and you became a full-time artist which uh has been more than successful and hopefully it it also fuels your your soul it it seems to i I was just gonna say and i never could have done it without the support of my family you know because initially i certainly wasn't making much of any money doing it and so my dear family you know helped me with bills and and I, I resigned from being the PSA director, but I continued, I did continue to do the layout of high country for a few more years. And you recently uh, received the PSA, the Silver and Sage Award, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Back, and back in 2014, along with uh, the two first female rangers, Kathy Leach and Nancy Wells. Yeah, it's pretty special. It is. So your family helped you those first few years as you were diving into the world of being a professional artist. And were you in Taos still or were you in Santa Fe? I was in Taos. Yeah, I I moved in and my house was in the Taos Canyon. Awesome. (laughs) um, Right on the road. And I converted, I was renting it from my, my friend who was my neighbor but she pretty much let me do whatever I wanted with the space. So I converted the one car garage into a rather rustic gallery. Okay. I was also, I was, um, I was primarily working in pastel at the time, which are, you know, like fine art chalks and, um, and some watercolor. And I was also making handcrafted soap. And so I would get a lot of Philmont people, you know, coming into Taos and who would stop in. Not only did my parent, were my parents, it was my family incredibly supportive, but honestly, through all of my art career, the Philmont community has been tremendously supportive. And in a lot of ways, Philmont is... Philmont's the reason I became, I, I, I really focused on landscape. And that's a story from, from my college years. Um, I went to college in Miami, at Miami of Ohio, which is about an hour north of Cincinnati. I, I had followed a Philmont boy uh-huh. <laughs> out there. And um, I, I majored in art. And I was majoring in painting and I was in a class where the instructor had us focusing on still life, painting still lives and interiors, which didn't interest me. 
but every Monday we had to show up with a, with a painting. It could be anything, a painting that we did on our own. And so one Saturday I, I was at my easel and there was like a still life display in the center of the room with fabric. And, and I just thought, oh, this does not interest me. And I remembered that in, I had my journal in my, in my day pack. And I carried with me a photo. Some people have heard this story already, but I carried I carried in my journal a photo of the view into the Moreno Valley from the top of Baldy, which I had taken on my Rayado trek. And um, I thought, I want to paint. I want to paint this. And so I had a canvas, a stretched canvas that was maybe twenty-four by twenty inches. And I should also mention, so it's winter in Ohio. And <laughs> yeah. so it's dreary, gray, gray cold, yeah. wet, cold. And um, I pulled out this photo of the view from the top of Baldy and I started to paint it. And I was immediately transported back to New Mexico. And I felt such utter joy while painting that and I thought and I realized this is (laughs) what a wonderful escape and um and what a way of bringing New Mexico and Philmont alive and so I began you know that catapulted me into painting landscape or landscape inspired work and and of course I had been an outdoors woman, right? You know, up till that point anyway. So it's not such it's not such a surprising leap that I would paint landscape. But but you know I will never forget that that day in the studio, the first time I attempted to capture film on. I think one of the reasons for me at least why you know I'm so why so many Philmont you have the Philmont fan base, if you will. Uh, you really do. It's, I feel like the piece moves, you know, like you can hear the, the Ponderosa pine swaying, or you can feel the sunset or hear the trickling water. I mean, not to get sappy, but your pieces, they move and they, they are, like you said, they come alive and, and you can tell they come from, from heart, you know, from a place of experience and joy. Uh, and they're just, they're gifts. They're beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Do you have a, I don't, maybe this is too intimate of a question to ask an artist, but do you have like a mantra or ritual when you begin a painting or do you just dive in? It, um, it depends. I, I go through, I go through phases where I may have a, a ritual to get me started, which I will work with you know, for several weeks or months, and then I might shift and, and start with something different. Um, last year, during COVID, I started a ritual of working in watercolor. So I was doing 12, 12 inch by 12 inch watercolor paintings, you know, on paper, and just playing with color. So, you know, I do main primarily two styles of painting both celebrate the landscape 
Um, I do traditional, you know, traditional representational paintings, you know, of the landscape as you see it. So most the Philmont prints that I sell or fall under that category. And I do those in, in sure. oil. And, and those are, those are enjoyable to paint. But my passion, the work that really excites me is when I begin to abstract the landscape. So I recently, this winter, I released a, a print of a painting that I call Colfax County Ode. And it's a semi-abstract landscape. In fact, if, if anyone is on my mailing list, my snail mail list, they have received a postcard with that painting on it. What, what I love about these semi-abstractions is they are, they are kind of like a, a visual collage of memory, of experience. So for instance, in that painting, there's very clearly a mountain. I mean, there is a mountain landscape and that's Baldy. That's Baldy from, from base camp, I think from the, the big house pasture. But then, you know, there's sort of a, a thin line and then another area that seems more abstract, but it's blue. It's the blue of the New Mexico sky with clouds moving through. So I know that the, uh, my, my abstractions don't appeal to, to everyone. And, and that's fine. They're not for the people who, who, who don't enjoy them. But I get tremendous satisfaction from creating these sort of compilation paintings. So the watercolors I began last year uh, explore abstracting abstraction and abstracting the New Mexico landscape. So, um, but working in surprisingly vivid color. And I think with all of the sorrows that were surrounding us, bombarding us um, last year into this year, my spirit just needed joy. And, and so those, so I would frequently start a painting session by beginning one of these, um, watercolor, I call them watercolor wanderings. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it just, it just depends. Yeah. It it just depends on what I'm working on and yeah, like you said, it makes sense. And, and just getting to know you a little bit through your, um, I subscribe to your emails and thank you. Yes. And you know, yeah, it makes sense that it would be a conglomeration of so many things because obviously you're not only an landscape oil painter, you love poetry, um, you love photography and, and just, I think you, you have a love for sharing what nature can give us. And so much so today in the world of, so much screen time and social media and this incoming noise. It's really nice to have those Tuesday emails because I usually sit on my, I have a couch in my kitchen. I don't know if that's taboo, but I, I sit on my no, couch. That's and, great. I applaud <laughs> that. Good for you. Thanks. I sit on my, my couch in my kitchen with my coffee and, and I know 
I know I have a slow Tuesday to greet me and it's so wonderful. And um, I'm sure those emails are a lot of work. So thank you for them. Oh, you are so welcome. They they are indeed. <laughs> they, they are indeed a lot of work, but it's truly a labor of love. And um, I, I started those, what, two and a half years ago, I think. I, you know, I'm no longer on social media. I got off of Facebook and Instagram a year ago because I found it was just such an utter and complete distraction. But when I was on those platforms. I wanted to be a place where people could come, no matter your background, no matter who you voted for, no matter any of that. I wanted to be a place of unity and peace. So the weekly email, Tuesday Dawnings, is is really just a manifestation of that whole idea. They are a lot of work, but it's so valuable for me too, because, you know, so often I will get, I'll let the news pull me down. And, but knowing, all right, I need to find joy to share or beauty to share, you know, what a, what a great directive. And sometimes the, the poems I might share or the, the, the poems I find to share are sometimes sad, but there's a beauty, of course, in that too. Yeah, I'm glad. I, I'm thank you for subscribing, and um, yeah, I'm glad you enjoy them. I do very much so, and yeah. uh, I believe I read on somewhere that speaking of poetry and and literature, um, is it? Uh, I think it it's it's somewhere it's it says that you have a list of everything you've read since you were 13 or 14 years old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've kept it in fact I just added one this morning. I've kept a, I've kept a list of every every book I've read since the age of 14. And, and all I write is the title, the author and the date I finished it. And my father started his list when he was 16. And I have his list. It's two notebooks. And what's so sweet is that I have my mother's list as well. And and when the very first page, you know, she started it the summer of 1954. That's the year they were married. My parents were married. And so at the top of the very first page, in my father's handwriting, it says, Marion's Books. So you know that he he must have given her this little notebook to keep track of her own books. And so Oh, that's so I think sweet. <laughs> one of my and and it's wonderful to to look through these books and my own too like whenever I enter a book and I've now started adding adding audiobooks cuz I listen to a lot of audiobooks especially in the studio when I'm doing you know work that doesn't require concentration. But I love to look back and see, okay, I just finished a book on July 16th. You know, what other years on July 16th did I finish reading a book? And and one of the incredible discoveries was I read, a few years ago, I read Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek for the second time. 
the first time I read it was 20 years earlier. And I finished it both years on the same day. What? (laughs) (laughs) That's wild. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's pretty incredible. I, I just, when I read that tidbit online somewhere that you'd kept a list, I, I obviously didn't know those stories, the background to it, but uh, what a unique insight into a, into a, a soul, like the list of things they take the time to read and, um, and to, to delve into and learn from. It's, it's like a type of journal or reflection in just a simple list. I think it's, uh, I want to do it now. It's very inspiring. It's You absolutely unique. should do it and get your yeah. kids to do it. And all yeah. you need is a blank book. It's helpful if you're currently reading a book, because uh, my, my I, I gave my niece uh, a blank book to start this and, and she loves the idea of it, but she said sometimes she forgets to add her book. Um, so put a little note at the end of the book you're reading, <laughs> you know, yeah. remember yeah. to add, it. you know, in my case, it's such a tradition, such a ritual. I get so excited when I get to add another book um, of course. That, I ne- that I never forget. Um, but it's so interesting too to to look back and you can to see where my interests were like when i was involved with you know different boyfriends suddenly my <laughs> reading list took on their interests you yeah. know yeah. for a little while and um it was really amusing looking at my mother's list in 1966 she read only four books that year. They were all James Bond books, you know, <laughs> books by Ian Fleming. And that's because yeah. she had three kids. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> all all under the age of six. So. Yeah, that's, that's the phase I'm in. So, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to start doing that. I love it. I, uh. I was talking last night to my husband about how how rare our planet is, you know, as far as we know in the cosmos. Like it's this rare gem, and um, for some reason, just hit me. Like I never thought of it in that way, and and then my mind started thinking about how really, you know, one thing that's always unifying to us, no matter where we're from or who we voted for, like you said, is like nature. You know, most people don't look at a sunset and grumble, um, and most people don't sit in a, you know, sit outside and feel poorly. And so, um, it's a unifying thing. And, and that always just brings me joy and hope. And I know it's like simple to say, and it gets old to say, but it's just, it, that's a religion for me. That's a spiritualness for me. So thank you for making that part of a big part of your passion that you share through your work. Well, my pleasure. I'm, I'm, I'm so touched that that you enjoy it, that there are people out there who, you know, we all get so much, especially when it comes to my, my Tuesday dawnings, my weekly emails, we all get bombarded with so much stuff and distraction and email. And so for me, it's an absolute privilege that someone when someone signs up and and stay and and receives those messages 
with openness and gratitude. It's just um, that's that's not that's never lost on me. And and the same whenever someone chooses one of my prints or paintings to put in their home or to gift to someone else. I mean, it, it, it's, it's truly an honor. And, and that's an, an honor is a word that, that may be overused, but I, I can't stress it enough, you know, and, and particularly the Philmont community has over the years made me feel so honored and I'm, I'm grateful and, and your invitation to, to talk about my experience is an, is an honor as well. So thank you. Of course. Speaking of Philmont, do you want to nominate anybody to be a future guest? There are so many. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm partial to the women, the women, the, the firsts, Mariah sure. Hughes. You know, Mariah Hughes, the first um, woman director of conservation. Carol Sears, who I believe is the first uh, woman to head up the trading post. I'd love to know about the woman who broke the glass ceiling in the ranch department. I'm not even sure who that is. We absolutely should know who she is. It's always a a labor of love to find and get a hold of people for the show. So um, thank you for their names and for their nomination, the nominations. Someone else came. Oh, Julie Smith, who's had a incredible history at, at Philmont. Yes. Do you, uh, final question. (laughs) Yeah. Do you, sometimes I like to ask my interviewees, um, do you have an 11th essential that you hike with? 11th essential. I'm I'm suddenly going through my head, my head with, well, what are the 10? I know. The first first 10. Okay. I know. Um, That's what I always do too. I can't imagine hiking without a journal or a camera. And when I, a few years ago, I hiked the length of Vermont. I did a solo, solo backpacking trek, the length of Vermont. And I carried with me two red bandanas and one had been my father's and one had been my mother's. So I carried those with me. Yeah. And um, yeah. They were your companions on your solo hike, if you will. <laughs> they, yeah, they were my angels for sure. <laughs> they got me through. They got me from from Massachusetts to Canada. <laughs> wow. wow. Oh, someone else um, is Jackie McDonald. She has become an absolute phenomenal backpacker. All right, I've got her name down. Well, gosh, is there anything else you want to share today? To the listeners? Well, I don't want to test their patience too much, <laughs> but <laughs> they can certainly find me online if they have questions or want other stories. Awesome. So, well, I'll, yeah, I'll link in, in your bio area, I'll link your website and, um, and yeah, I'm sure people will reach out. I always hope people reach out, you know, after I interview someone, I hope all their friends call them and they share <laughs> stories and they banter and catch up again, you know, because like you said, 
you can get distracted in, in the world today. And it's, it's fun to get back to those Philmont days and those people that were so near and dear to your heart. So, yeah. Well, Dawn, thank you. This was a lot of fun and it was selfishly a lot of fun for me personally, just because I am such a fan. And so it's fun to, to kind of, you know, meet you across the screen here and hopefully I'll meet you someday in person, um, maybe through a PSA event or something. And for sure, you're, st- you're yeah. still in Santa Fe. Is that right? I'm in Santa Fe. Yes. Okay, great. Yep. Well, if we're ever in the area, I'll possibly knock on your door. <laughs> yeah. Give a shout out for sure. All right. Well, take care and thank you so much again. Same to you. Bye-bye. Thank you.